0: caution this episode contains talking talking can be dangerous or fatal if you're breastfeeding or have problems urinating don't listen to talking if you're scared of the future beware of talking if you're haunted by the past because talking leads to discussion and discussion leads to understanding you have been warned
1: i'm michael marcus and you're listening to drinks with tony
0: drinks with Tony show yeah you're listening to drinks with Tony I'm your host Tony Duchesne today on the show we have Michael Marcus he is the author of number one son on punk hostage books and we have punk hostage press I'm sorry yeah yeah we got so much to talk about how you doing Michael
1: I'm doing alright today, Tony. We had a little discussion on the way in. I was battling some demons this afternoon, but I, I, I was looking forward to coming here and, and just kind of getting out of my own head, so I'm, I'm doing okay. Yeah.
0: yeah, we were talking about uh, just depression, and um, I mean, it, the depression kind of rules my, I don't know if it rules my life, but it just feels like it's
1: always around.
0: Or maybe we're in touch with it because we're writers. I don't know.
1: It's, always, it's almost like a, 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 a like dangerous uncle in the closet that's just constantly knocking to let in, but he's promising this time he'll be nicer.
0: This time I won't insert it as far. Right,
1: right. I won't go as deep into your brain as I did
0: last week. Yeah. I just love going, we're starting straight at incest at, uh, the, minute, at the minute mark. If we don't have incest in, by the minute mark then I've done something wrong
1: so I appreciate this let's really open up spiritually mentally and and emotionally thank god i'm not I'm sort of an incest survivor I had some weird shit happen when I was younger is there this sort of would be more the word because there was just some weird sexual stuff with relatives and and cousins but I, I don't think I've accessed all of it yet you know what I mean isn't that weird
0: because yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we just don't know, I guess, exactly, because we couldn't, we couldn't define it at the time. So there's no, there's no definite uh, mark. There's no file. There was no file there's folders
1: no file. yet. It's, it's 404, file not found. <laughs> and I think also that the human condition allows us to, to shut things out, to blot things out, that, that we, have may, we may not had tools to deal with. At such a young age, although I did become a pyromaniac at a very young age, so there were things I was starting to burn down, and they said there's a connection between deep abuse and pyromania. So,
0: I think okay. So when I met you, you were doing that reading, and which was great. And I think you, I think your story was about was it? Did you have a story on pyromania, or did I, or was that or was that something else? The one you, the one you did at that reading. Don't you love me
1: putting you on the spot, like? For this, it's about pyromania. But here's how here's how foggy things are to me sometimes. You know, I wrote that book, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't even know what the fuck's in it sometimes. It's like, well, what's going what? Yeah. Yes, there might be something about pyromania in there because the same detachment sometimes happens with me with those stories because there's still a little trauma attached to those stories. So doing reading, sometimes there's a come down the next day about, wow, what did I just read to those people? It's one thing if you're reading my book, it's another thing if I'm reading my book aloud to a crowd of 30 or 40 people, you know?
0: I feel you. There's some stories that I I read where I I was the Last time I was like, I had, three, I had two readings in a row or something. I'm like, now I'm going to go do this at an open mic, too, because I'm just going to be pounding this story. And the last time I read it, I was like just completely choked up. And I was like, I got to put that story away for a while. I can't read that. Was like, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. Exactly. Is that mostly your thing is nonfiction?
0: Uh, oh, God. It's
1: You're a music reviewer, too. But as far as you getting down personally with your own writing.
0: It always starts as nonfiction, and then I kind of weave it around to, you know, confessional fiction, whatever that yeah, means. Whatever
1: that would be. Right, right, right. Yeah. I guess that's my thing, too. I mean, I even wrote a TV show based on my father. He was a Beverly Hills jeweler, auctioneer, who was laundering money for, believe it or not, Crips and Bloods. He was working oh, yeah. both sides. And, um, and also a guy in Las Vegas named Nate Rogers. So we wrote this... Um, Two episodes, a seasoned Bible, a one sheet. and anonymous content at one point was very excited about it. They gave me what's called a shopping agreement. They took the piece and brought it out. Um, and, and it didn't nothing ever came of it, but but writing that really helped me access a lot of the stories in the book and to go deeper into the book and to, to really see the impact that my father had on me growing up as far as just being surrounded with uh, sexual and criminal behavior early on. And thinking like, okay, this is the world. I should prepare myself for what's to come. I'm six years old, and this is what's happening. You know what I mean? Oh,
0: definitely. It's, there's, there's, uh, it's like we don't have another reference point. We, we, there's there's no, uh, no other.
1: Right. And that's why I think, too, like, I think originally my mother and father were my higher powers. You know, so so I think for me early on in the program, and still... I have a really hard time with a higher power because we go into I'm gonna go ahead and I don't know if I can speak for you I'll go speak for me I go into what is just survival flight or fight mode and like that's the bottom line is like I just need to survive you know so I, I used to get a lot
0: more panic attacks I don't as much now I didn't even I even checked myself into the hospital for agoraphobia and depression some years ago just be uh, that, when was, it was probably like 2011, but it was just it was right after my book came out and everything died down and then I couldn't leave my house. But I'd been battling that for years. So that whole flight or fight, fight or flight thing, um, I'm, I have a kind of a recording in my head of, oh, this is not this is not going to kill you. Hold your breath. That's always the first thing to get the, to get the symptoms down and then something
1: you said about breath work even the early stuff that we learned just naturally about breath work and the fact that you said hold your breath is kind of interesting because what that does is it just like it, it brings a pause and a clarity to what's really going on around me and then breath becomes the most important thing Outside of everything else that's going on, is that does that make sense, or that
0: makes total sense? Because then, 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 then after that, and now, then, when I know I'm not dying, right. then all of a sudden it's just like, oh wait, what were the feelings that brought that? And then all of a sudden there's usually like oh, some type of sorrow or loneliness. But I could like pick out and go, that's why when I'm walking in the middle of the street, I thought I was gonna be beamed up to another planet and crushed all at once.
1: <laughs> oh, what a trip! So did you? Were there specificity? Was there specificity around the emotions you were having? Like, could you draw it back to like, oh, that was when my mother did this or my dad did that or a neighborhood bully? Was there a thing that triggered that or you just got in touch with the emotion in general?
0: Well, it was a little of both. So like it like now, like now, after a lot of therapy, now I can sit back and go, okay, now what 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 has happened in the last few days? What just happened 10 Mm. minutes ago? Who did I see? Or, you know, that just right. may have looked like somebody.
1: woke in that whole... I, I don't want to use trigger. I'm so sick of the word trigger and trauma. And although I do have definitely PTSDs, like because I feel like I got through a battle, there's something about seeing these things as being re, the, a reawakening of certain images and feelings that were, like I said, neatly compartmentalized for a long time, you know?
0: Yeah, maybe... Sometimes even seeing, like, a healthy family happy together
1: would throw me. <laughs> Motherfuckers. <laughs> I agree with you. I agree with you. I had a lot of, in fact, this is, gets really weird. I definitely had borderline issues with other kids, moms and dads in trying to get in good with these people. Like maybe they'll take me in. <laughs> maybe I can run away and stay here because my father was such an abusive, twisted household I grew up in. I was looking for any other adult figure out there. And that's a part of that book. I don't know if you've gotten too deeply into my book. but. Number one son in other stories is about me looking, you know, looking for love in all the wrong places. Uh, You know, whether it was these pimps at Oakwood, whether it was uh, the Israeli Coke dealer, um, whether it was friends of my father's, but not my father. Like, I wanted to get away from him so badly that I was looking for other figures in my teens. My stepfather, too, who I didn't want to get away from, but was also extremely volatile and toxic on a whole other level. Than my real father so there's something to be said about that searching right and that becomes searching for a higher power or for some sort of spiritual path as well obviously that, that that's really interesting because i feel i feel like
0: i'm you know the search doesn't end almost but i don't know if, i don't know if i have a definition for what the search is but the, the higher power spiritual thing is, i think that still grabs at me the um the the you know it's like Cause, I mean, I grew up with Jehovah's Witness. I don't know. If I, so, so the, my, my experience... have me beat.
1: I have a semi. <laughs> finish line to spiritual hell. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm sorry. Did you have to wear the magic underwear and all that? Was I'm wearing magic underwear right now. Right. The magic at our age is they don't get a shit stain in them, right?
0: The magic now is it is I could smell it and it still smells fresh. Right. <laughs> exactly, and I'm
1: close to the restroom.
0: No, I. Uh, that's Mormons. The Mormons did the magic underwear. I knocked on your door. <laughs> I knocked on your door since I was like four years old. That's the, that's the Michael
1: Jackson. Uh, yeah.
0: Except I forgot to fondle kids.
1: It was on your list. Is that? I <laughs> didn't check that one off
0: like oh yeah the Michael Jackson I still got to do the rest of that I gotta um, bleach my skin and do
1: some plastic wow. surgery now look he, he, it's funny because I've been seeing it's not people come to his defense but there's people that have psycho psychological and emotional viewpoints about how he grew up yeah. never ever would I say well he grew up so you know that's why he's a pe-. but I will say this dude Joe Jackson was a motherfucker to his kids oh, yeah and that kid never had a childhood whatsoever so he was looking he was looking for his childhood where we were looking for a dad situation and you've had you know you had slumber parties with your friends did you grow up with anything like that where you guys would all hang out and do yeah i mean i had a couple of them here and there but i mean
0: we were so sexual i mean you couldn't even talk about sex like as a jehovah's witness almost so it was just like push it down push it down that fucking wow man Deep. We would whisper like. By the time you know, I was like ten years old. Wait, we, because well, we, we had to go to the Kingdom Hall three times a week, so it was like Bible study all the time. So you know, we would write "fuck" in our watchtower and show it to our friends, and then they, and then they would be like, "Oh,
1: we and scratch it out really quick." That's. <laughs> So wait, did Jehovah's Witness also believe like they don't believe in vaccinations? They don't believe in medications. Is that is there well, truth they, to that?
0: Well, no, they don't believe in the blood transfusion thing. So that was the whole, that's their big medical thing is the blood transfusion. Which, yeah, I got a whole story on that because so I so actually you're
1: meant to bleed out. You're meant to bleed
0: out. Is yeah. that? <laughs> I almost I almost did once, oh and but um, I. When I was coming to, when I was in ICU, they're like, "Well,
1: you know," because I was just like, "I can't have blood." And they're like, "Well, let us at least." How old were you? I was 22. So you were so programmed at that point. There was no way of even. God damn.
0: They even said, "They said you are going to die if we don't give you blood. Can we at least prep your blood?" And I said, "No, I'd rather die." And then when they then when they told me what was happening in the emergency room later, because I was coming in and out of consciousness, they said every time I came back, I was like saying, "No
1: blood, no blood." And then I was back out. Oh my God, that's fucking intense. And that was somewhat your spiritual awakening.
0: No. Oh, there was so much. There was still. Ass whooping after that. (laughs) Well, I was like, I was a spiritual rock star after that because I lived. So then they're like, see, he fought the blood issue. Didn't get the
1: fucking transfusion. So you were the chosen one. There can only be one, Tony. (laughs) Here we are. Is that Highlander? (laughs) I love that actor, by the way. Duncan McLeod from the Clown McLeod. I love that guy, but the other guy that comes to try and wreck his game, the evil version of that, right? The guy who was the... The guy from Shawshank Redemption that was the guard who gave everybody the ass-whoopings. Tall, insane guy. He was also in the Sean Penn movie. Um the original bad boys where Sean Penn's in like a California Youth Authority program or something and this guy was the bully beating everybody up. He's a great actor but he was the one in Highlander that was just wrecking fucking shop while the other guy was trying to keep it together. There was two of them. So anyways. Well
0: there could be only one though. That's right. Ultimately. What's weird is right when you said that I haven't even thought of that TV show for years, but it's so imprinted on my mind. All you had to do was, you said there could be only one, and the theme song from Highlander TV series was in my head.
1: But isn't that... See, I'm talking about the original movie. I never saw the TV show. Yeah, and the guy that played opposite him, who was a fucking genius. Great actor. This guy's a great actor. Um, Well, that's what movies and TV do. They program us as well, right? You know, it's funny. I had to deeply set aside everything I thought I knew about recovery about therapy, about going back to AA because I've been in and out of AA since 1981 and I got programmed by a lot of mainstream AA slogans, bumper stickers and I met a couple of cats in mid 2005 Um, when I came back again I think it was my 13th rehab I don't know the numbers, it was a lot um and what i realized was i was using a lot of old information to try and have a new experience with not drinking or using again and when i really set that aside and saw what i was up against because not only am i a severe alcoholic like dt's if i don't drink i have an incredible problem with crack cocaine and heroin <laughs> and um the crack is a gateway drug right <laughs> yeah to hell it'll bring you to the gates of hell Truck. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> there's something above the gate that, with, or that through that other gate, let me know. Um, sorry, I threw, a, I threw that out there in the that's middle. Here. I love it. I love it. Um, so I had a new experience with sobriety that I'd never had before, and it's funny because that's what led me to improv oh, wow. That's it. We were talking. we were talking about improv. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah which also helped me finish my book. Improv is this really amazing tool that helps me kind of yes-end my depression. It helps me yes-end my writing. It helps me yes-end moments with my wife where I want to go the opposite way. And it's not about cowering or being an alpha doormat, as I like to call it. But just really surrendering into the moment of what is kind of the way we breathe through depression, right? And just being chill with like what is the big fucking deal here? Because it's usually the ego that's saying no. It's either saying no, but to me it's like yes and now. The other great word is maybe. And my favorite way to bow out gracefully is to say, you know, you might be right about that. (laughs) There's no argument there. The best one, though, actually beyond that is, let me get back to you. Because I need that pause in between of like feeling that sense of rage, anger, or the ego defending itself right, which I think you're pretty you seem pretty neutral actually you don't seem like a guy that would battle anybody online or combative argumentative type dude
0: I think I used to be a lot more uh, and I've just been trying to not jump at it as you know as and just. I know, coming to Los Angeles, actually living, because I, when I was in San Francisco, the last place I lived in, the Tenderloin. So that's a constant energy battle because it's, I mean, people are smoking crack right out your door, and
1: people are trying to hustle you. Of course, sure. I spent a little time up there, yeah.
0: And it's just so, when I came down here, and I was like, just even walking through a crowd, I was like, get the fuck out of my way. kind of. Then I'm like, wait, I'm the asshole. You know, and so I think um, just being in Los Angeles, it's kind of taught me to maneuver in a different way. Maybe I'm in the right area in Los Angeles. I don't know. You
1: are. Do you walk more often than? Did you drive up here? Or did you walk up here? I guess you're pretty far to walk.
0: Right? Uh, pretty far. Yeah, I drove. Well, I was, I was, I was, I was, I wasn't at home, but um, 'cause we're in LA, you, yeah. I was all the way across town, and I'm just, boom, 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 ba dum, boom.
1: Yeah. Iris, my publisher. Thank yeah. God for her.
0: I know it was so weird because I was just like Iris, and she's like what are you doing? I was just like, oh, I just had to do an, an interview and I'm going over to do my, Michael Marcus right now. And she's like, whoa, what? So, <laughs>
1: world. so crazy. I love that kind of stuff, that synchronicity that comes about. It's almost like the, uh, who's the filmmaker? Richard Linklater did Wake, Waking Life and all these, Slacker. these, oh, Slackers are the perfect example of just bouncing off one person to the next, getting information that goes back to the other person who had a conspiratorial idea. Yeah beautiful fucking movie that guy does time things with time and space that no filmmaker can do except for maybe Bergman there's a couple of old fucking school ones that do it but yeah he's amazing man he inspired me too it's funny I'm just thinking about all the stuff that inspired me through the years to go deeper with my writing and to look deeper at at time and space and what an effect it has on my emotions and if I get too caught up in the past, or I start what they call... I love this word, future tripping. This is my favorite oh, one. one. Yeah, future tripping's great. Yeah. I do, that. I do that all the time. I was thinking about next month's rent, and it's only the fifth, and you just paid this month's rent. It's like...
0: And then, yeah, it's... I, and, you know, me, you know, me being in the, you know, where my income comes in sporadically as yeah, creatives. Me, yeah. Yeah, 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 sure. Where it's just like, okay... I got till April. Whoa. After that, I got a Volvo with a wagon. <laughs> you know, I didn't like, put a... Like,
1: and then, but, but everything always turns out, and it freaks me out. Always turns out for me. The thing is, if I'm sober, things turn out. If I get loaded, I always end up homeless because I can't deal it's hard to deal with uh, a landlord when you 're smoking crack, you know what i mean there's there might be a reprieve here and there between hits, but the for the most part it's very difficult to to get that deal with him that can I just pay a little at the end of the month or the middle of the month so
0: yeah it's, I, I didn't I didn't even really I didn't even because like, this is how sheltered i was i didn 't really smoke pot or even get stoned until I moved to l a like five years ago, and that was kind of the first time i ever had the feeling of get, of pot and I was
1: like oh okay are you kidding me wow it's kind of cool though because I feel like being mature at that level or smoking pot or getting more into drinking I feel like you've developed that adolescent brain better because you weren't just saturating it with THC alcohol and all forms of drugs and you can make more of an adult decision based on Drinking or using, if that makes sense?
0: Yeah, maybe. I um, I mean, what I have found is I, because I was like really starting to like pot, and then mm. the next day, the depression was always uh,
1: worse. That, that part is the worst with yeah. pot.
0: Yeah. And, I, and now it's, now, you know, my buddy's coming down this weekend. She's like, we're going to smoke pot together. I'm like, okay, but I'll smoke pot with you. But the next day, just. just <laughs> But other than that, I'm, I, yeah. What's
1: funny about that is CBD works really well for depression, but THC just doesn't. Well, there's friends of mine that, that usually use, or they use these tinctures that are such a mild amount of THC within the CBD oil that helps depression. But now, this is crazy, and I'm sure it's very expensive. They make a ketamine spray, that's working for depression. A very mild amount of ketamine that you spray into your nose. So, there's new things coming. Yeah. For me, I can't use things like that. Unfortunately, they kind of trigger me to want to do other drugs. If I do something that's minor mood-altering. I only know that, Tony, because i tried to do that unsuccessfully for about 27 years. And all roads led back to crack and heroin and vodka.
0: Yeah, it's... um I don't know about the crack and heroin, but I understand the uh, the appeal of the drinking and all. You know, especially in San Francisco, i like everyone does. Everyone thinks I'm sober.
1: You drive in San Francisco, right? For the most part, you are on foot, so like, why not? Yeah, yeah, it's deep, man.
0: So coming, so coming to LA was like actually healthy, and then everyone thinks I don't drink anymore, and they're like, oh, I was out with a friend of mine I haven't seen in years. He's like, oh, did. Uh, I'm gonna get a glass of wine, is that okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna get one too. He's like, what? And it, I, it's just, I have my very drunk stories I tell from San Francisco where I'm just like, oh, no, no, down here, you just can't. There's, it's, yeah,
1: Yeah, you can't get anywhere. So you were there pre-Silicon Valley and you were in Frisco when it was fucking, like Lower East Side and New York City style stuff before it got ridiculously Trumpified. Which happened way before he became president, obviously, or any of that. What a great time to be in Frisco! I was in New York in the '80s, and it was one of the most amazing experiences. I'm really glad I had that experience. And
0: that was—is that like Lower East Side? Is that where you're at? Uh,
1: I was in the Lower East Side. I was on Long Island. Uh, lived on in Long Beach, Long Island, which was like real bro, you know, uh, Jersey Shore-ish type stuff. I got my ass kicked quite a few times, but I learned to fight, so that was a good thing. Uh, and, uh, ne- Your ass kick is is the best way to learn how yeah. to fight. <laughs>
0: uh, um, yeah, I, I haven't. Um, yeah, I'm not the guy that I, I'm a, I cry in fetal position. That's my uh, that's my <laughs> defense.
1: And, and in most cases, people will walk away. Yeah, yeah. You know, they feel bad for you. I just lose my
0: dignity and I keep my bones not broken, I guess.
1: It's worked out for you up to this point. You're not a gun guy then, right? We're, we're Jehovah's Witnesses, gun people? Some of them were a problem.
0: Uh, maybe if they're Midwest hunters, but not, um, but
1: not traditionally just pro-guns. But not pro-gay. Not, not pro-gay, but not really acceptable. Anti, 100%. Yeah, yeah, of course. What about race stuff? Are they kind of weird with the black folk, people of color?
0: Actually, well, my experience was absolute, like, totally not. And that's what was great about it. That was one of the cool things about, because the, the, I had to come to grips with what was great, especially about being a Jehovah's Witness, especially when I was writing the book about growing up Jehovah's Witness.
1: Which I need to read, by the way. <laughs> Everyone should buy it. If you read it, that's fine. <laughs> Thank you. That's really what it comes down to. Right, Amazon, number one son and other stories. 43 reviews, so that's pretty good. Which- More than me. I think I got like 34. It's fantastic. I only had to ask for like 20 of
0: them. I didn't ask for I didn't ask for any. I felt so weird I asking. I don't like that. I, why do we have to do that? That's it. Just.
1: But it's funny because in working some sort of a program. I've learned that you know what as an artist it's okay to ask for some sort of recognition without being heavy-handed and desperate about it you know what i mean no,
0: i'm t- i'm getting to learn like even with drinks with tony and someone was telling me start a patreon account and i'm like you know it's i don't make i don't have the or anything for this but i'm like i can't ask anyone for money and then they're like well here's what you can offer and i was like oh okay i i'll do more work and they can you know, but it still feels weird. It might be because we're from the 80s, where it was just like, nobody was ever going to make money. We were all going to
1: die. That's such a weird... You know, it's... I don't want to be like that guy anymore, though. Because like, we're in a time and a place where what we, the words we have to say from that time and the place that we're from, people want to hear, dude. Because what's missing is the face-to-face stuff, and that we grew up on the street, and we had to like do some work to see where things were happening. You know, we had to go research. You had to go see bands. You didn't learn about these bands on MySpace or Facebook or Friendster. Like you were out on the streets in clubs seeing bands and writing articles, which I love, man. It's fucking great shit, dude. Yeah. Well, I um when I by the time I was
0: writing, there were, the internet was kicking ass. But like when I was a kid, I would just I would we would find out about bands from friends. We would all make mixtapes and then we would find out that they're playing San Francisco and yeah. we, you know, we would sometimes I could tell my dad, I was going uh, certain bands and other times I'd be telling like I was going to Bible study and in Britain Ber- to see my Berkeley friends and, Oh, that's good. Good job, yeah. son. And then I go see the red hot chili peppers at the, uh, with primus. And
1: yeah. I think there's quite a bit of an age difference with us probably. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm that much older than you. How much older am I? Shit. I'll be fucking 55 in August, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I went to Hollywood High School and I learned about bands by just walking up and down Hollywood Boulevard or wherever I was and heard music coming out whether it was, you know, Def Leppard at the fucking uh at the Troubadour or whether it was, you know, uh, Black Flag at the Starwood, whatever it was. Like or somebody would tell me I was a very dorky kid. So when I moved up to Hollywood, I learned a lot about punk rock and and the scene of what punk rock meant at that time, which it, it, it meant do-it-yourself for the most part. There was a very... I wasn't from the, the art music crowd, which, which I listened to a lot of uh, Suburban Lawns, some of the early bands I think of that were, you know, more into the art scene, television, some of these other bands. You know what I mean? Um, when I got up here, it was more public image... Black Flag, Adolescence, Agent Orange. God, there are so many of them. Um, You know, GBH. uh. So yeah, it was definitely a different scene for me. And there was a lot of anger involved and I was attracted to that for for a lot of reasons because being an abused kid and growing up with fucking Carl Marcus, the Romanian German Jew maniac from the Bronx, there was no way I could kick that man's ass. (laughs) You know what I mean? So if I could get in the pit and start swinging some elbows, or even take a beating and get... That's a great thing about most pits back then. And a lot of pits that I went to probably up until 2000 was you would get knocked down or elbowed, but, you know, they'd reach down, they'd lend you a hand and say, let's get back up and do it. And there was something about that, that brotherly shove.
0: No, I was so attracted to that. It wasn't like I was doing it at hardcore shows. I'd be more like a, uh, you know... Or you know, like kind of like a Red Hot Chili Peppers or a ska show, where the pit wasn't crazy violent, but I would come home bruised, and the next day I would feel so good because it was just like it was almost like I needed the um, like as dudes, you need to have that kind of playfulness, like bears at after each other, and it just it does something, you know. Absolutely.
1: And that second wave that occurred in 1990, I moved back to LA. It was the Red Hot Chili Peppers. It was Soundgarden. It was Body Count. It was um, wow. There was these great, there was these great bands in LA that never really exploded, and there was a great punk scene that was happening just locally. That was a lot of about pits and everybody hanging out and showing up together. There was a place called the—I don't know—I'm sure it's still there—Gaslight and Raji's and English Acid, where bands were first starting, Green Day and uh, Rage Against the Machine. And then there was Jabberjaw, which was this coffee house. I spoke—I think we spoke for a second about it earlier. It's, dude, there's mixes you can get online live from Jabberjaw. And uh, there was this Jen and Eric, these two people that were pretty much curating the place and had a direct stream to Sub Pop, like Sub Pop Seattle. So we were getting all those bands through Jabberjaw with Screaming Trees, The Melvins, Temple of the Dogs, Soundgarden. I mean, dude, I get chills just thinking about it because I never thought there would be something like that again after growing up in the 80s with punk and new wave. There was a reprieve from all that. Music got kind of weird in the mid-'80s. Black Flag, all these bands were trying to hold on, which, by the way, made an amazing comeback, too, thanks to the Seattle scene, Um, in my humble opinion anyway. Um, But the fact that that returned, and now I'm 26 or 27 years old, back in L.A., and it's 1990, and there's amazing hip-hop going on, which I'm a huge fan of. So it was good times, man. Early '90s in LA was great, great time. It's still good times, but I think you know what I mean.
0: I did. I started. Uh, I did college radio. It started in 1990, and San Francisco. Hey, 1990. Wow. At KFJC in San Francisco, and um, I, that's when I left the Jehovah's Witnesses just for a little bit. But then I got scared and came back. But the my the, my crew from KFJC in those years. I'm still dear friends with all those people. That was just that was such an important moment for like all of us, and to find out we were all going through really bad shit, and we came together in this weird collective of just radio junkies who wanted to learn how to splice reel to reel together and wow. do our radio shows at 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Everything
1: punk and new wave oh, yeah. and hip hop, sort of like KXLU stylish. Uh, my favorite. I love that shit. I would love. If I was really independently wealthy, I would be a DJ somewhere with a wall of music and be able to really pick and choose stuff that I know people would be into because that was the experience. Because I grew up, listening to a lot of jazz, listening to a lot of Frank Sinatra, Billie Holiday. My mother and father had an extreme eclectic mix of music. And then early on, when my mother left my father in the 70s, you know, it was uh, Steeler's Wheel and Blood, Sweat and Tears and really early Elton John stuff and, you know, Electric Light Orchestra. Like, such a great mix of stuff that we were exposed to as opposed to today where there there was a... A station called K West in Los Angeles way back in the day, and there was also KROQ, which was on AM. Rodney on the Rock. I don't know if you ever heard of this. I I, I used to get
0: the Rodney on the Rock compilations, rock compilations. That's how I found out about a lot of bands. Was he
1: put out those Volume right. Ones and Volumes Two that's compilations? That's right. Um, there was that. There was God. There's other station that oh, which was all very early hip hop funk. Oh man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get an ass whooping because yeah. I can't remember. Somebody's going to hear this and go, how the fuck could that guy? It'll come to me. It's hard when you have a microphone in your face, people. Right. It's, yeah, it's, it's right. not easy. Right. And, and I, I bring all these things up because they were a really big influence on me. Public Enemy was a really big influence oh, yeah. on me. Keras won and Boogie Down Productions, a really big influence on me because that was my access to the CNN of the inner city. You know what I mean? Like that's what I, saw, I saw that as. I, I just got the anger.
0: And I, I just, I didn't, I, I didn't understand any, even with punk rock, I didn't understand anything against Reagan. I'm like, I that was, I wasn't, didn't understand that part. I just heard the screaming from the gut, and I went, because I I, KPFA was a station in San Francisco. Yes, familiar with it. Yeah. They used to broadcast Maximum Rock rock and Roll Tuesday nights at nine o'clock, and my Bible study ended at eight thirty. So I got home and I put the ear, you know, the Walkman headphones on. And just snuck into my room and from nine o'clock to ten i just listened to this thing that was i knew it was satan but oh. i liked
1: it <laughs> wow. fantastic um yeah that that kind of music saved me k west was a lot of it. early industrial stuff craft work k west was amazing but these it's he, pop music killed those fucking stations like once i have to say that that video truly did kill the radio star when i think about it because i remember the early days of MTV and a lot of these stations were struggling for listenership um, except for Rodney because Rodney was so unique and so cool and had the bands literally on and really having these amazing discussions um, but when I moved to New York, I'm jumping around a little bit, there was these DJs named Stretch and Bobbito which were breaking these hip-hop acts. If you ever get a chance to listen to Stretch and Bobbito on YouTube, same thing, uh, College radio. They broke like Nas, Notorious B.I.G., like these really early acts. And again, man, this was the stuff that inspired me to go deeper into my authenticity as a writer, as an improver, as a human. Instead of like trying to put a bunch of stuff on, these guys helped me to learn to subtract a bunch of bullshit, poserish shit that I was using as a front, you know? As we get older, isn't that great that we to me that's what the spiritual life really is it's about subtraction because i've tried my whole life adding shit to me whether it was money sex food whatever that was and that that subtraction really gets to my authentic self and not to sound too you know ethereal hippy dippy accessing my authentic self is where some of the darkest twisted shit it came up in that book that apparently people really like, which always surprises me when people like my stuff. It's like, oh, well, yeah, thanks. Uh, it's hard to even accept those accolades, you know what I mean?
0: Oh, way, way too much. Cause it's just, I, I, and it's so hard for me to go go back and read anything I wrote for so many years. It's like I can't even read the articles I wrote for the Chronicle because I look
1: at them I'm like, oh, man, I could have done this and this and this. What do you think that really is? Is there a tinge of of some emotion that goes with that? Is there something that you think you could have done better?
0: Maybe that, or maybe it's some weird thing where I'm trying to trick myself, thinking that I'm way better now and I'm going to be way better again, so I can keep, it's my way to keep writing, I guess. Future
1: tripping. (laughs) Future tripping. Well, because you're fine just as you are, right I mean, I have a hard time believing this about myself, but I'm going to go ahead and say it about you. You're fine just the way you are, Tony. Yeah. <laughs> we just had a breakdown. Is that like yeah, you just got a Tony Robbins <laughs> moment right
0: there? That was Goodwill hunting. Yeah. <laughs> it's not your fault. It's right. not your fault.
1: They made a hell of a movie.
0: They sure did, yeah. It's funny because
1: <laughs> he should have been saying that to Robin Williams, I think. Oh, <laughs> real life, yeah. Oh. Another person that really inspired me, that yeah, I was very young, and somehow getting into comedy clubs with my sister, my mother, with my uh, with my brother, and he was one of the acts I saw very early on. Him and the unknown comic, the unknown comic used to wear, <laughs> and Freddie Prince, and Franklin Ajay, if you know who that is. The Freddie Prince was uh, Chico and the Man, right? Chico and the Man, that's right, that's right, and. Richard Pryor one of the first albums I ever heard was it uh, was it something I said was a Richard Pryor album this was in 76 or 77 actually it was earlier than that I was already into Pryor because my mom bought me an album that he did in 76 and I'm only saying this because it was the name of the album it was called Bicentennial nigger and That's again also where I learned the truth about people of color and how black people were treated. And he talks, he does a thing in there towards the end, at the end of the album, about like a shucking jiving dude talking about 400 years and how happy we were. And he's like, y'all forgot, but we'll never forget. And it ends on this really dark note. And I'm just like, I'm getting chills thinking about it because again, I had these awakenings when I was younger. Thank God I grew up in multiculturalism that how fucked people of color and women really were. I saw firsthand how fucked women were because my dad was with five different women that he abused all of them. I was like, okay, maybe one of them deserved to be abused. (laughs) Maybe one was out of control. Cause when you're a kid, you don't know, you can't differentiate who the real bad parent is. They're both fucked. But is it that one or is it that one? It's like door number one or door number two. So when I saw that that kind of treatment Of people in general, of women in general, I really started questioning everything that I thought I knew and I grew up with at a very early age. And same thing when I moved to LA in 1979, 80, I'd been living in Orange County before that, which you know what, I know a lot of people down there, I'm not going to talk shit about Orange County, because it did have an amazing punk rock scene. And it still does. And a fellow writer, Jack uh, Grisham from TSOL, I I love that he's down there And he does a a really cool little morning show on Facebook. I'll hit you with a link once in a while. And he's just, he's, you know, I don't have any heroes, but if I did, that guy would be the closest thing to somebody that I really respect that's still out there doing it, man. But yet has access to vulnerability and sincerity that I rarely see in old school punk rock dudes. You know what I mean?
0: Oh, yes, I do. That's, uh, That's one of the reasons why I kind of stopped interviewing musicians and getting out of that because you know there's there's the, the four out of five that are great but man that fifth one i'm dealing with an ego and an image that they're trying to project and I, that's why i'm just like I'm, a, I'm like a writer guy we just we come out and it's you know especially our age is where we're just like we could just talk normal to each other we don't have to front yeah, we don't
1: have to put on this whole t- so no johnny rotten interviews coming up in the near future would oh my you God! Want to? Would you? No, want
0: to? you know I used to want to, but right. like after I've seen his like rant, his drunken rants recently. I don't know if you saw the Marquee Ramone. Like huge
1: Trump fan. Which listen, I love the Sex Pistols. I would still listen to the Sex Pistols. P.I.L. I think was even better on tons of levels because not not for nothing, but the Sex Pistols were a boy band that Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood basically put together. Right, dressed them, put them together. Although Johnny did have his original way of dressing, and he was total from totally from poverty. Which is where the safety pins came up from—is to put, basically, just to wear a sweater that was held together by safety pins. Actually, the Filth and the Fury is a fantastic documentary about the Sex Pistols. Uh, Anybody out there who hasn't seen the Filth and the Fury? Fantastic. Um, But it it bums me out that he did kind of become this this Trump defender. I don't know if he's actually a Trump fan. I should recant that but he is definitely a defender of Trump on some levels and that kind of freaks me out
0: I, he feels well, he just feels like a cartoon to me now and it's just you know fucking my day you know how horrible is that accent right <laughs> that i just tried to do it was <laughs> pretty close but yeah <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's, it was pretty good <laughs> you're not cast tony you're just you're not cast get out of the room johnny in the uh,
1: remake of filth and fury we need an overweight guy with a mustache to play Johnny Rotten, <laughs> right? It's either that or uh, wait. Who's the person that plays everybody? I'm sorry, it's so funny. But I see stuff. I see stuff on Facebook where they get an actress to play any sort of role because of she's that actress. And I'm trying to think of who it is. But it's it's this funny idea that they don't cast anybody unless you know the bean counters are saying, "Well, if we get her, the movie will at least do that 20 million that we put into it," right? And all the weird stuff where they have to
0: count in international sales. That whole international thing I didn't even know about where it's just like that name better be there or we can't sell in China. That's
1: right. So Jennifer Lawrence is going to play Johnny Rotten.
0: Exactly. And then she comes in with a snarl and you're like, no,
1: that's Sid Vicious. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Did you grow up reading like... One of the first books I really remember, I mean, I grew up reading Nancy Drew when I was like six or seven, or Encyclopedia Brown or Ribsy. I don't know if you know any of these books, but these were kids' books, you know, in in, in lower grades, whatever. But I remember my stepmother was reading the Charles Manson book, Elter Skelter, written by Vincent Bugliosi, who was the the guy who fucking convicted them he was the da the lada and i remember reading this book this is crazy and it's amazing i the only thing i became is a drug addict because it could have gone a whole other way tony because i, I feel like for serial killers killing people is just as addictive as no doubt about it and i remember reading this book and going oh you can kill people <laughs> Or you can get people to kill people for you? Wow. that's like, I mean, I was like 10 years old and I was reading this book and I kind of delved into the serial killer thing. From like a California place. You ever see that movie, California? Right, from that to, you know, I was that character who was more observing and writing about it. But it was teetering at certain points. I remember I, I was trying to hire a couple of these bloods to kill my father. Yeah, because I was so... My sister had told me some stuff that happened between them. And I remember being so fucking furious and so powerless and helpless, and I wanted to... And I told her about it, which, by the way, rest in peace. My sister od and died seven years ago around this time. February 25th, to be exact. Yes, 2012. That was a hard year. Um, But I remember telling her that. And she was like, no, no, it's not that bad. I'll let you know. But I was like, I had just come out of this youth program in California, which I'd been in for 18 months. And I became pretty friendly with Crips and with Bloods and with these 18th Streeters. And there was this other gang called Colonia Watts and White Fence. And I was just this dorky white dude that made people laugh. So they liked having me around. But it was a cult- those cultures I learned about again, very deeply about how they were brought up how there was this machismo involved that they had to meet up to just like i did but i remember wanting to hire these guys to kill my father and it really emanated from some of that early dark cinema and literature that i was reading think of 70s fucking film dude Seventies film was gnarly, Mean Streets, Godfather, Taxi Driver. It goes on and on. My dad took us to those movies that he wanted to see. Not what I mean, occasionally we'd see a Jaws, which was also kind of traumatizing at nine years old. Kept me out of the ocean for a minute. I couldn't see any of those movies till I was in my twenties because I couldn't
0: watch R rated movies. So I was like,
1: That's also a Jehovah's Witness. No R rated. How about PG thirteen? <laughs> but not PG. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, only PG-13. Right. Yeah, yeah. You can see a titty, but you can't right. see the bush. <laughs> so that, growing up, God, you know what's so great about doing this interview is I'm accessing more stuff than I've accessed. And I've probably been on, I think I've been on five podcasts to talk about my book. But I've also done about 25 podcasts with this millennial girl, which is a pretty fun, funny thing that we do. Because she has her ideas about, you know, as a 26 year old in this time and place. And I have mine. And we butt heads, but we also meet in a lot of areas and discuss stuff. But what I'm really accessing is not only was I surrounded with sex and violence in my immediate family or families, because my father was with five different women, my mother was with two other men that were pretty criminal gangster Jews on their own level, one being a sex therapist from Long Island. He wasn't a criminal gangster, but he was very running with scissors, if I may. Like that kind of a, I don't know if you ever read that book, but it's pretty, yeah, yeah, like that kind of a, uh, you know, uh, sex therapist with the the Van Dyke and the turtleneck and the pipe and what, you know, not was it something your mother did, but I know for a fact it was something your mother did. (laughs) Um, So again, growing up with that kind of weirdness, it's funny, I didn't even think about the films that we were seeing and I mean seeing 2001 a space odyssey when you're fucking literally when it comes out and you're in the theater, these are heavy impactful fucking movies, man. So there's always been these, there's been these files in my head as we talked about where these things pop out once in a while. And I go, wow, I have very dark thoughts for a really valid reason because those were hardwired in very early. Interesting. Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses
0: had this thing about uh, Armageddon's coming any second. The government's going to come, and they're going to find out where the true religion, and they're going to kill us. And then, so they would show. We we got violent imagery. I mean, even concentration camps. They would show us that stuff in slideshows, and because the Jehovah's Witnesses were in some of those concentration camps, and um, and they were saying, "It's good. What's coming is worse than anything that's ever happened. So we have to stay together." And so I had a. I look back at some of the just the images were online. The some of them, that they that was just normal fodder to show us. And I'm like, I would beat the shit out of anyone who showed my six year old kid something like that. That's just like, grow. But it was so normal. It was just so normalized. And just pray to Jehovah because this won't happen if we do this. You know. So.
1: But aren't you? I mean, and that. By the way, that's horrifying. And I'm sorry you had to grow up that way. Can you give me a hug? Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, but that's all religions. It's all based on fear, no matter how they deliver it to you. Whether it's the imagery, whether it's the uh, you know, I heard the cheesiest thing, and many times in AA is you know, religion is uh, for people that are afraid to go to hell, and spirituality is for people that have already been there. Which, which for me makes sense because I have experienced. You know, it's like the bad religion song. How could hell be any worse? You know, and it's it's the truth. It's like the hell is my perception. And my belief systems and ideas that have been really hardwired into my thoughts and into my body on some level. And the, the the freedom or relief from that is really setting all that aside to be present with you doing something like this right now and not being dominated by a bunch of that shit and being able to talk about it freely without really no repercussions because when we were kids there were going to be repercussions if we talked about what the fuck was going on outside our home, right? Yeah, the whole secret, you know, don't that the family, family secret. Family. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, the internet has so many wonderful qualities if you could sift through the fucking garbage that's on there. And I think one of them is is that there's people that have gotten a lot of freedom by really being straight up about their stuff and not being worried about being judged. Obviously, there's a, a ton of bullying and a bunch of shit and internet shaming that goes on.
0: Yeah. I, just, I just
1: duck. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. And I also have learned, as we spoke about just a little while ago, is to not engage. Somebody shits all over my post. I, I actually, I used to just block people right off the bat. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not even going to do that. I'm going to give them three or four more chances without engaging and being combative about it.
0: I've been getting very... Um I guess more attuned with the energy that I let in in my life. And so, and that, the people around me, it's, you know, it's like, oh, wow. Like sometimes I'll even be like, damn, that person's, I can't be around that person. And then I get self-reflective. I'm like, oh shit, have have I ever been there like that around someone? Maybe I repelled the energy before. You know, I'm I'm a hippie sometimes in this, in this,
1: encased in this body. You know what? I'm trying to access my inner hippie. I, I just, yeah, I always really funny. Yeah. So my wife, this amazing woman, grew up in LA too, uh, Fairfax High School, old school oh, wow. punk rock girl, uh, yeah, an African American black woman who, and I only mention that because she was like the only punk rocker at that time in her school, you know, like a pink fucking afro mohawk style thing. Oh yeah, she's absolute badass. I'm. I don't know how this is that I'm even with her. I I mean, I know how it is because we've been together 10 years. We've been married two years. And the amazing thing is, is we kind of both come from the same place on different levels in our past relationships with our alcohol and drug problems. And like the fact that we've made it through so much, um, because most of my money, not most, all the money that I pretty much made before I came back in 2005 was all from dealing drugs. It was from burglaries. It was from uh, stock scams, credit card scams. And I knew, excuse me, I didn't know. I had an awakening that if I didn't live honestly and make an honest living, that I would never be able to stay sober. I just wouldn't. Because there was a direct tie-in to the shame and guilt of living in that criminal, lying, degenerate lifestyle there was a direct connection with me getting loaded again. Because real criminals do not give a fuck. For me, as a criminal that was basically trying to medicate my way through my criminal behavior, once the medication goes away, the truth comes out. And the truth is, is like I see that that can be a real scumbag without some sort of a spiritual path. Let's just put it that way.
0: What's al- What also is intriguing is if you have to if you're you doing you know you doing the scams and you're doing other stuff and you're dealing with other criminals that you have to keep different lives in your head going because you have to lie to different people in different right. ways and i feel like that just takes up so much brain energy if you have like wait a second okay this guy knows about this but he doesn't know about this and like right. it's
1: yeah yeah and i mean i was forging prescriptions i was forging prescriptions from doctors i was going into pharmacies with prescriptions that i wrote just like holding my breath, <laughs> making sure that they think the bottle came out.
0: Well, I, I, the, I like the part in your book about uh, 9-11, that was a very big day for you.
1: Uh, yeah, 9-11, Ugh. and that's, that's something I still feel shitty about, but I also know because I was so stuck in the disease, and I do believe it's a disease addiction and alcoholism, and I was also in a very untreated state of depression. Um, I couldn't really think about... I tried to be compassionate about what was going on in New York, but my biggest concern was rounding up as many pills as I could, you know, for for profit motive, and just so I didn't have to kick. So I didn't have to withdraw off opiates and Xanax, and it's just... That story's... There's so much going on in that fucking story, man. You know, and it's funny because there's a very dark, funny element to it that I saw... You know, you only see, I only saw these things when the book actually came out and I was holding it in my hand, holding it in my hand. I don't see it on the computer screen. And I also see it, and I, I hate to admit it, but like I need a little validation from some people that I respect for my art. And to get that from Jerry Stahl and from Mark Marin and from Jack Grisham, who, you know, yeah. I mean, just the reviews those guys gave me. Really helped me to believe in my art. I'm not gonna lie. I believed in my art a little, but getting reviews like that really helped me.
0: I so I you know you know you get you get a book out or whatever things happen people come out to you and you know but then you have those moments like and you just said Jerry Stahl because when I, when I was in L.A. Yes. Um, I was at a party mm-hmm. and uh, he introduced the last me a couple of years. This happened. This happened uh, probably uh, 2014 when I came to or maybe 2015. Um, and the, the movie was already produced But it, had, it hadn't come out until It didn't come out until last year oh, okay. but, uh, So he just knew about the book And he, so he introduced me to someone He's like, you should read his book It's called Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk It's really good And I looked at him and I was like You read my book? That was one I was like, wait a second, you read it? too he's like oh yeah i'm a fan and i was just, just like mic drop i'm out thanks jerry stall yeah,
1: yeah, yeah that was like
0: that. a pinnacle that felt like that meant everything to me right. it wasn't the advance i got it wasn't it was like jerry just did that without i didn't even ask him anything
1: about if he ever read it i didn't even know was the book out before you actually did you make it was the movie made from the book or you made that movie separately oh, no, no, it was based on the book so the it was the book first so they basically optioned it and gave you an option deal or how does that work like when they actually buy your book or use it for film or tv
0: well for when it went so this was very independent so essentially um they had eric stoltz in as director and then me and him were going over the you know he was was giving me notes for the script and we were working together script
1: you ever wrote or you had written scripts before that?
0: I did work with another producer on do, putting the TV pitch together, and then that fizzled. So we worked on that for a year. So that, and I really liked working with that producer. And um, what was fun is by the time I got to someone like Eric, I I had just trained like working with that producer, even though it completely fizzled. Uh, I had trained into what what's, what's going to be asked, and also. What I should stand behind and what I should sit back and go. Let me just let those notes digest and see, w- and then see where I can take them. Kind of know when to say, let's just let's put this on the shelf and let me digest it, and then I can come back. I fi- I felt I, I I had a confidence in my rhythm that I didn't have. If
1: I so there wasn't this sense of immediacy or like trying to get it going. It was like something you kind of sat back with a little bit and said, let me see what this looks like.
0: When we were getting notes, I mean, right. I was hustling the minute he but the minute he wanted a treatment I was okay, that's, you know I was needed to
1: deliver that exactly I see what you're saying
0: he's interested he's interested right now and then I'm sitting there going I can't believe he even read the
1: book you know I'm like really yeah, it's very impressive it's a very impressive one of Jerry Stall, which like I mean my it's funny I was living in Silver Lake at the time when they were shooting and editing Permanent Midnight in fact my roommate was one of the editors my roommate Richie and um, I, I was just blown away by that book. And I was like, wow, you can write that? Like, it's funny because the different periods of my life when I'd read Hunter S. Thompson or Bukowski or, or Jim, T- anybody actually that really impacted me in a way where I didn't know you could write those things. Because as a kid, I wrote stuff that was like, well, yeah, I guess this is okay. When, and as I got older and I had a great teacher named... Um, Mr. Githens, thank you so much. I still have the little book that I wrote or or, or the little journal that I kept. And he was a teacher that I had in Orange County, of all places, who told me, you write whatever you want. It's between you and me. I'm grading for grammar and spelling. And in that book, I talked about stealing. I talked about getting loaded. I talked about my dad being an asshole. I didn't... uh, 14, 15... So that's when I started accessing some truth about prose. You know, not purple prose, but black and blue prose. <laughs> right? You know what I mean? So I really am very grateful that I was exposed to, like, those writers, Bukowski and all those people. Because I saw that, wow, this is fucking horrible. But it's also kind of funny. And to find that kind of comedy in that drama and that really intense beatdown of the human condition... That's the magic, dude.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's. It,
1: it, the tragedy
0: and comedy are just so close to each other that you just push it a little to the side, and all of a sudden, it's. You, you have a comedic piece out of something horrible. And it's just.
1: Right. And what uh, not a better way to deliver your art than like with that kind of sincerity and realness about. That's, you know, the Scorsese. Those are the movies I grew up with. Yeah, they were horrific and scary, but there's some really funny parts of of Goodfellas and 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 uh, you know Taxi Driver and his, his earlier stuff. Even uh, Mean Streets, dude. Didn't he, didn't he even do
0: comedy with Robert De Niro first before yes, any of that? And then because it was called King of Comedy. Oh, King of Comedy was rad. That was dark.
1: Was Boy, it, I mean, a horrific story of. of of this guy who was so deadly, but at the same time, there was such amazing neighborhood-style comedy, and those guys all growing up together. Yeah, man. Did you do comedy with De Niro before that? I think way before
0: that. I haven't seen any of the movies, but I think they were trying to go the comedic route, and then I think they did I Mean Street. Access. I will find those. I want to get back to, um, because you were talking about getting, into the, uh, getting out of the self-censor. And the back to improv, when did you start doing improv and the whole, yeah, because I feel like when I started doing improv, um, that's when I started to write. I mean, that's when I went, oh, my God, I don't have to be ashamed of anything. This is the first instinct is okay. Yeah. Even though I still have a ton of shame, don't get me wrong. No, <laughs> right. I know what
1: you're saying, though. It's easier to access without taking it too personally. You, you taking you too personally. Um, I started at this this guy named Denny Evans. This was in the early 90s, and it was short-form improv, improv, and then I didn't go back to it until 2005. Uh, The Upright Citizens Brigade, a small theater on Franklin had just opened, and um, I would go see ASCAT, I would see some of these shows, and I started doing the levels. I think I saw some of the shows before I actually started, and I went through all four levels. I did some really cool classes with some of the original members of the Upright Citizens Brigade. And then I did monologues for, the, for Ask Cat, which was amazing, amazing, man. And, um, and those monologue and doing that monologue, and doing the moth, I did the moth probably six or seven times. I couldn't have done those things without doing improv. There's no way I could have done the moth without doing improv. And doing the moth led to me writing a little more and a little more. I still have a very difficult time writing because I just I'm a fucking sensitive guy sometimes, dude. And when stuff goes down on the paper, it's like, ah, I gotta back up off that for a minute. (laughs) You know? I, I think if it was if it was nonfiction, it wouldn't be a problem. And I know I could probably write nonfiction, but I think I'm in this place right now of really accessing my own shit and having to get it on on paper. So I continued doing improv, then I got out of it for a while, and then in 2012, when my sister Odidin died, I went to therapy, but I also knew that improv was a very good tool to use for trauma and grief and sadness, and I got back into it again, got out of it again, and then about a year and a half ago, I went to uh, the Pack Theater, which is really an amazing theater. It's very indie. I'm, I'm older, so there's some comedy and some improv there, but that I've already experienced or I understand. You know, there's a generational thing in improv, but then there's also a genera- generational thing that's really cool because I get to do improv with this younger crowd of people that are really sharp and brilliant and bring bring challenges to me where I need to kind of be to stay up on what's going on culturally and what's happening. And I don't have to be some old curmudgeonly asshole judging somebody's improv or comedy, but I get to be up there and play on the stage with them. It's dynamite, man. I, it saved my life. So you're working, on, you're working with the pack now? I'm working with the pack. I just started uh, another level. I, I did all four levels, but I wanted to go back to level one, for a couple of reasons. One being there's a teacher there, this guy Neil, who's just fucking amazing. Just, in fact, what are you doing later tonight? You gotta teach a class. Yeah. What about 10 ish? Do you okay. wanna meet there?
0: I will probably be asleep because
1: oh, yeah. I'm on lack of sleep. When it, do you do every Monday? Is that you what I try to go on Mondays, but there's a particular team called Dingleberries, 10 okay. o'clock on Monday nights that are fantastic. Maybe we can meet there next Monday. Yeah. Because I, I I want you to come and see this team. They're amazing. In fact, go see any shows at at the Pack. But the Pack is at the right near the complex between Santa on Santa Monica between Cole and Cowanga. You can see it. There's a big placard out front. Um, Placard. What am I? Ninety. Look for the placard. I hate these women with flappers. <laughs> right? I mean, what am I? Placard. Um, So, yeah, again, improv came through. And I'll be auditioning for a house team, which if I get on, I get on. If I don't, I don't. But there'd be something for me very special about showing up every week and performing and really being into it and making more of a commitment. Because for me, as I get older, it's really about visibility and getting out of the cave, which can be my house. Yes. You know, and and just being more vulnerable and and being okay with being out in public. (laughs) Well,
0: same with me. The, the depression, that depression, I mean, you know, yeah. being a writer and then the seclusion and the isolation, the depression can really kick. And then it did kick really bad last year for me. Oh, wow. And then I was just like, wait a second. OK, everything's stop. Yeah. What am I doing? Oh, I'm isolating myself. Right. I need so you have to actually make an effort
1: to go. I'm doing this. I'm doing yeah. that. And then all the, and just. And to pencil it in and be accountable, not just to who you're going to meet there, but like, how about being accountable to yourself yeah. and going like, you know, I'm going to go out with myself tonight. Yeah. Cause me and my wife, we do great fun things together, but occasionally like I need to take myself out and be vulnerable. Just me. Yeah. And to, to go and quench my whatever, if it's artistic thing, or maybe it's just a film, some goofy movie yeah. But, like, I, I got to do that, dude. I got to. I, I got to spend time with me and be okay spending time with me. And I had a hard time doing that for many, many years.
0: It's interesting because, like, people who've uh, thought about, yeah, I've talked to, like, oh, you should take improv or you should take a writing class. If they go, never do it as a couple. You have to go alone because it, yeah. Yeah, the, there's, that, there's that awareness mm-hmm. that, you'll, that you'll still kind of maybe self-censor. And when yeah, you're yeah, with totally. the group, energy where the and no one's self-censoring then it's fun
1: k-day the station was k-day i love k-day okay now what what was because earlier i said i couldn't think of the station fucking k-day dude late 70s very early 80s was my exposure to hip-hop it was uh sugar hill gang it was um Oh God, it was some really amazing music on K-Day that I cracked me open to hip-hop.
0: I, so when I can't, oh,
1: K-Day's on FM and it's old-school hip-hop, right? Yeah, oh. so
0: when I drive around town, like... I'm so, you know, it's like I can listen to college radio and go, oh, yeah, I know that band. I know that band. And it bores me now. But I, but I listen to K-Day and Power 106. And that's like alternative music to me. And I, I'm learning all the, like, lyrics to this stuff. And then they're like, and then people go, do you know who Drake is? I'm like, no. And then they'll show me a song. And I'm like, I know
1: every word to that because <laughs> I listen to it in the car. I love Drake. Drake, I like, but Pusha T, I don't know if you've heard Pusha T's too there's some amazing fucking hip-hop artists i'm not it's funny because i did a podcast with these guys and we were talking mostly about shitty hip-hop and i felt bad and then they posted it on youtube and they were like who's that old asshole talking about public enemy and blah 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 and i didn't take it personally but what i neglected to do on that podcast was to talk about some amazing hip-hop that's out there's a guy named vince staples that blows me away, and of course, I'm gonna sound old and curmudgeonly because he's been out for three years already. Where have I been? You know, that's what the new music thing is it's like been staples that came out three years ago, you know what I mean? Like, I just found
0: out about Kendrick Lamar like last year, and I'm that, and that whole record's amazing. I just and people, just, yeah, people just laugh, they're like, Oh, there's. Tony finally found that (laughs) and I was introduced
1: to Kendrick the great thing is 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 having having a black wife and the extended family it's like I get to really get cracked open to a lot of music and film and and and, political stuff that still I still have white privilege that I don't even know fucking exists until it's called out and it's when it's called out by some white liberal dickhead, I don't want to fucking hear it. But when I really hear it from my mother-in-law or an extended, uh, my one of my in-laws, it's like, yep, I sure do. That's me. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing to be called out. And people hate that fucking white privilege thing. And then there's people like Jordan Peterson and these fucking Sam Harris's. And, and who's this other guy? Oh, These pro-lifers, these Judeo-Christian pro-life fucking... Anyways, that, uh, you know what's funny about Ben Shapiro is there's stuff that he says that's about personal accountability. And he, once in a while he shreds Trump and he shreds the lip because there's a form of liberal out there that it freaks me out as well. But when they get into being so pro-life that they literally want to take like that. They want to reverse Roe v. Wade. That's when I tune the fuck out. I can't go there, man.
0: And it makes no sense because it's just like, just don't do it. If you're pro-life, great. Make your choice. That's right. Just uh, why are you making the choice for everybody?
1: That's right. And why? Do you really want a vagina? Is that what's going on when you're a male that's that? I mean, obviously, it's religious stuff, too. But I think it's a man made religion it makes sense that a man would still be wanting to make choices for a woman it's a man it's man made
0: I, I don't know what I would do if I had something growing in me. I mean, I know what I would do. I would go to a cancer doctor and get it pulled out. The yeah. women have a different
1: thing. Yeah, yeah, and it's not my fucking business unless I was involved. And then even ultimately, it's her fucking choice. And you know what? I'm going to be resentful and angry probably if I wanted to have that child and she didn't. But, like, deal with it, motherfucker. You know? It's just crazy to me. So there is something about... Occasionally when I hear a Jordan Peterson talking about accountability and make your bed, like I've learned to pick and choose certain things, but to really listen for the signals of oh, he's that guy. And some of those things that those guys say that really turn me off is the fact that there's no such thing as white privilege. It's like, really? Are you are you really that sure about it, Mr. White Man? You know what I mean? Like, I'm not sure about it. I know where mine exists. And if it exists within me, I would venture to say, and this is somebody who was taunted as a half-Jewish kid and called Big Nose and Kike and Brillo Top, and whose family, thank God, if my grandmother hadn't left when she did, I wouldn't fucking be sitting here with you. Yeah. But yes, I still have the complexion for the protection. Yeah. That's the bottom line. I, so I drive a Volvo wagon,
0: and I'm a white dude. And I my and I had a headlight out and I, the whoever had the Volvo wagon before me had decided to put a six hundred dollar headlight bullshit in there. Well, I just want a bulb, so I just had it out for like two years. I had a headlight out and I was just I was driving by cops and I'm just sitting there going, man, I'm a white guy in a Volvo. They're not gonna pull. They no. won't pull me over. Sorry it's you and and not and, you. Yeah. and uh, there was there was a little bit of like. Even, you know, I was kind of, after, at first I was like, oh, crap, we're going to pull over. Oh, crap, we're going to pull over. And, you know, not like there's anything wrong, I, but who wants to deal with that? And then all of a sudden it's like a year goes by and I'm like, I'm almost driving by him and waving him. Well, hello there, Andy Griffith.
1: You know. Right, right, right. It's crazy. And that's what I'm talking about is like we naturally, because of our skin color and, you know, this is going to might raise some eyebrows. I'm sure not with your listenership, but some of the people that may listen, because I'm going to promote this obviously. Um, But we do get away with stuff and Trump's gotten away with way more than Obama. And by the way, Obama had his signature drone program and was no walk in the fucking proverbial park either. I'm not a fan of either party at this point. Don't get me wrong. But like, it's pretty obvious to me that Trump's gotten away with a ton of more shit on a lot of different criminal levels than Obama did. I mean, it's like Noam Chomsky says, if we really impose some criminal laws, every fucking president would be brought up on criminal charges for and war crimes. We know this. But like, there's just stuff going on with this fucking maniac. It's so hard to deal with, Tony, with this fucking guy. I, I, I've
0: had to personally stop. I stopped listening yeah, I to so. NPR. I stopped listening to the news because
1: I just, I I know it's bad. There's they don't have anything new to tell me. It's bad. They don't have anything new, and it's it's pretty rare that you'll find anybody that's in the center dissecting this. Jimmy Dore is is pretty good. I don't know if you've ever listened to Jimmy Dore. Fantastic comedian, uh, political guy, comic side. You know, there's the yeah. accurate stuff. Exactly. Because if they're heavy-handed, left-wing. MSNBC or obviously Fox News. How am I going to get an accurate, objective view from basically what are celebrity? There's ce- these are celebrities. It's it's inter- celebrity. It's not a fucking journalist. There's
0: no journalistic integrity more, anymore. It's an entertainment industry, and that's and I don't. I really don't care. I'm, I'd rather. I don't
1: care either. And by the way, for any of our younger listeners out there, please see network. Oh. Networks brilliant. Network. Yeah, uh, I'm glad, like I said, I grew up in some really intense stuff like that, and but we, we get to learn very early on, and what we do with that knowledge, whether we take it and become a you know, whether I take it and become a curmudgeonly old fuck, or whether I take it and become a guy that's sober that's really interested in helping young people get off of fentanyl and heroin, which is what I do. Every day, every day. Actually, I was doing it six days a week. Now I'm doing it five days a week, where I show up and I facilitate groups and rehabs, and I talk about an antiquated old piece of literature called the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I break it into present day terms about what it is alcoholics and drug addicts suffer from, and it's it works. It, it's kind of I I've learned to be effective because I've had people be effective with me in seeking. Uh, the realm of the spirit to release ourselves from the bondage of self. The bondage of self to me is the obsessive thinking that comes with addiction and alcoholism and the utter you know the utter inability to believe in a power greater than yourself which to me Is higher consciousness. That's all. That's all that this God word ends up being is higher consciousness.
0: Well, even I mean, when I left the Jehovah's Witnesses, it was hard for me to even think about the Bible or about Jesus or anything. And then now I go, wait a second, that Jesus dude had some pretty good shit to say. Just, just don't, you know, there's things that you know, you you can pick out the good parts and go, you know what, there's some good stuff there, and don't deny
1: the. You you were able to have that awakening because you were violated. <laughs> you were violated spiritually. Because I think as kids, we were born of these... You ever listen to Alan Watts? He's pretty amazing. He's a, he's a bay. He's from the bay. or Not from the bay, but he did a lot of stuff up there. Uh, he had like a boat, Marin, or something. But he talks about accessing space, space consciousness. Eckhart Toll talks about this too. But like how we're so hardwired to be to be stuck in object consciousness, to stuck in the world of materialism and to not see clear open space in our thinking and to to not be open-minded. And for me, to not be some curmudgeonly old fuck is really only because crack, opiates, and alcohol kicked my ass into a state of being reasonable in the realm of... There's got to be something else out there. You know what I mean? Like to really believe that like, wow, me in and of my own thinking, I seem to always go back to things that are going to fucking kill me.
0: You know, killing that pattern. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. It's been great.
1: Thank you for having me. Seriously, this was good stuff, man.
0: Michael Marcus on Drinks with Tony. Check out his book, Number One Son, and other stories out now on Punk Hostage Press. Hey, thanks for listening. Have a fantastic week. I'll see you next Wednesday when our guest is Rhea McCurgie, and she is the author of the fabulous book, The Body Myth. See you next week.